Data anonymization is an ever more important problem with many pitfalls, and the legal context requires more and more companies to find a solution to it. In this episode, we talk to John Kraft from Privacy Dynamics, who offer data anonymization as a service. Privacy Dynamics is powering a world where ethics, data insights, and personalized technology can all coexist to support business growth and customer privacy simultaneously. John talks about the different use cases, technologies, requirements, and challenges he and his team faced throughout Privacy Dynamics' journey so far, and what might be to come. This episode is hosted by Jeff Hemmen. Jeff is a DevOps engineer with strong experience in security, the software development lifecycle, and cloud technologies. He's an expert in HashiCorp technologies and is one of the most sought-after trainers in EMEA and beyond. Jeff has worked for companies ranging from small startups to the biggest financial institutions. He runs his own consultancy that provides services in DevOps, cloud, and security. To learn more about Jeff, check out the link in the show notes. John Kraft, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Do you want to start us off just with a, with a quick overview of uh, your company, Privacy Dynamics, uh, and brief history, and then what you do, and then, um, yeah, we'll take it from there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're Privacy Dynamics. We're a seed stage startup. Uh, and we've been around for three years. And our vision all along has been to unlock data that's not being used today. So there's a lot of data that's not used for fear of re-identifying individuals. There's a lot of data that's not used because um, it's very subjective as to how risky a data set is. So if you have a data set with healthcare information or consumer data or financial data, um, a compliance officer which are typically lawyers, they'll, they'll say, uh, I can't tell you how risky, what a risky data set is, but I'll know it when I see it. And so that was, that's sort of like the, the under, underpinning of the company was to come up with a way to quantify data risk in a repeatable mathematical way. Um, and along the way, we realized that if, if we knew what was making a data set risky, we then also knew um, how to anonymize it and make it safe. And so really, that's, that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to uh, make it possible for data to be shared within, within large organizations, you know, between one org and another where data can't be shared or between different companies. Um, and, and speaking of anecdotes, um, I don't know if this is still the case, but up until not too long ago, it could still be true. I'm, I'm here in Seattle. The uh, Seattle Fire Department wasn't sharing data with the Seattle Police Department. And it sounds crazy when you tell someone that doesn't know much about data privacy, when you tell them that, it, it, it's it blows their mind. But when you think about things like a 911 phone call database, it actually contains a lot of sensitive information. So um, 
Graham, our CEO, he was at Microsoft for seven or eight years and he was working on Azure and at the time, and this is, this is a while ago, but trying to get um, government agencies, municipalities, private companies to move to the cloud. And the hangup was really moving their data to the cloud. And he's, he saw a big opportunity there to, uh, for, for, you know, changing things and disrupting things in data privacy. So the data that, for example, you want to move to the cloud or the data that could be shared between a police department and the corresponding fire department, uh, in both instances, that would have to be the real live data though, right? And in these specific examples, uh, anonymized data would not be uh, what they want, right? Like if the if the fire department shares an, an anonymized version of its data with the with the police department or vice versa, uh, would that be useful? Um, yeah, I mean it's. I think. I think if you're if what you're getting at is is uh, data needs to be shared in re in real time versus data that can have. A delay. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different there are lots of different um, applications in data privacy. Um, it's there are a lot of different companies in the space, and there are a lot of different problems that need to be solved. And our where we really started was uh, not really data that not real time data, but if you want, if you need to do some analytics on some data, um, and 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 you're okay with a, a five minute lag or a twenty four hour lag or even a thirty day lag, um, that that was really where we started. So you know, if you if you're if you're trying to do some analysis of say nine one one phone calls to figure out um, what times of day are the calls being made, what what types of what types of cases are being reported, like those sorts of things? Well, you need to share that data with the to the data science team, um, and they don't have to have it in real time. There are other companies, I'm sure. There's, I'm sure there are other technologies that can solve the real time challenge. Um, but that's we saw that as a as just a small piece. Um, a bigger piece is just analytical data. So. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, sorry, I think there's a, a bit of lag, but no, I, I came across uh, that use case of, of data analytics as well and uh, another, as in, in my career, and then another one I think your website talks about, which is um, just data in, in other environments, like staging environments, development environments, you still want data that to the system feels like the actual data, so you can trust the load tests you run, or so you can uh, show demos that actually make uh, makes sense, but obviously you don't want to have actual um, sensitive client data in the lower environments. So on your website, you also speak of um, de-identifying. Is this the same as anonymizing or is there a nuance? De-identification is, is really more of a formal term 
to describe removing PII. Anonymization is, is, is sort of going a step further and it's, you know, making sure, or the way we, the way we look at anonymization is greatly reducing to a very, very, very small chance of an individual being re-identified. So there, there is legislation here in the U.S. and all around the world, but um, the big legislation here in the U.S. is HIPAA, CC, CCPA, CPRA, um, and they spell out very prescriptively uh, what identification is. And it's, it's a little bit different, I think. Interesting. Interesting. So what would you say the challenges are in either de-identifying or anonymizing data? And obviously don't spill your whole uh, company secret sauce, but I suppose a good way of framing it would be um, if naively now I said to myself, I have a small uh, company and I want to write my own quick let's say Python script to de-identify data, what are the quick pitfalls I'm going to, uh, to fall in very quickly? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I would, I would caveat that by saying it, you know, it depends on the industry you're in and the type of data you're, you're working with. Um, but yeah, but at a high level, you know, people are, uh, when they think about de-identifying data, they're just talking about removing direct identifiers. And that obviously, that those need to be um, taken, taken care of, um, either removed or masked or, or you know, um, uh, replaced with synthetic data. Um, but there also are indirect identifiers. And those are things like age, gender, marital status, uh, nationality. And those things by themselves are perfectly fine, but they can be combined together to uniquely identify someone. And that's, that's, that's really what we do is, is we make sure that, um, you know, we go above and beyond just removing direct identifiers. We also take care of the indirect identifiers and make sure that um, you know, individuals can't be re-identified. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Not always uh, intuitively, if you think about the most common cases, but I suppose it's especially in edge cases where uh, incidental re-identification can occur. Uh, I thought about this a few times when I was uh, at uni, for example. If you ask someone their nationality, and their first name, like, oh, it's John from the UK at the University of York, that doesn't really narrow it down. But if I told people I was Jeff from Luxembourg, those three pieces of information that I studied at that uni, uh, my country, which obviously very small, and then my first name, because there was another guy from Luxembourg at that uni, would actually uh, identify me uh, precisely. But um, so, yeah, it, it doesn't always apply to the first big big uh, categories you think of, but then it would in, in in smaller cases. So how do you ensure data cannot be 
re-identified? Do you run some sort of simulation on the de-identified data to see if the machine's best guesses can actually yield some uh, results that would jeopardize uh, privacy? Or, or how do you go about that? Is it more kind of you have a model that's mathematically already proven to uh, to de-anonymize and you trust in that? How, how much, I suppose, how much upfront uh, theoretical work and how much dynamic computational um, work goes into your approach? Well, it starts with um, proven methods. There's a lot of academic literature out there. I mean, there's just mountains and mountains and mountains of it. And, and our approach is, is based on K anonymity. It's not exactly, we have our own flavor of it, but so I think it starts by, um, using proven methods. Um, we also work with uh, the foremost expert in de-identification. We wrote the guidance for HIPAA. So we started with healthcare data, which is probably the most rigorous, um, uh, you, you know, heavily protected and, and yeah, legislated category. Yeah. And, and then, and then we run, you know, a statistical attack model, um, making very pessimistic assumptions, uh, to identify the weak records. And, and we assume that the attacker has a lot of really good data. And then, and then we, we look at the weak records in the data and, um, we blend them in with, with the other records by um, perturbing the data so that, you know, you can't, you can't identify a single individual. Interesting. So would, would it be an accurate analogy to say, going back to my previous example, uh, self-centered though it may be, um, if uh, there is a, a an entry in the database that says, oh, this is someone called John from Britain. We're happy to have that as a category. But if there's someone called uh, Michael from Andorra, we'll put him in the same, as in we won't have Andorra as a category, but we'll kind of aggregate it with loads of other small countries so that on average, there might be more than one um, Michael from that group of countries. Is, is that kind of the analogy here? Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, I, I don't. I don't. I, my uh, knowledge of European um, geography isn't fantastic. I know where Andorra is. I've I'll, actually Andorra has been on my list of places to go for a long time. But another thing that we might do is we might say um, they're not in Andorra; they're in uh, Southern Europe, or they're they're they're. They're, they're somewhere between France and Spain, or like, I, I don't, if there was a, a larger region that you could move them into, that would be more obscure. Okay. Then we would, we would do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I see. Um, you talked about K anonymity just now. Can you briefly explain uh, what K anonymity is? I used to know. It's, it's essentially bucketing uh records into 
you know, a certain size. So uh, where K is the size of the bucket. So you could have K equals two. That means you've got um, at least two records that look the same. Or you could have K equals 10 or K equals 25, uh, K equals 50. And so, you know, if you've got K equals 25, then those 25 records are, they're all going to look the same. And that's, yeah, like that, that's how a lot of the, the data brokers work is they'll, they're sharing data with bucket size of 25 or 50 or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're basically putting down the resolution of your data from one where you can see each uh, entry individually to um, a, a lower resolution where you can see 25 at the same time. And I suppose um, that would make it impossible to, in, if, if we go to um, the example of analytics, would make it impossible to run analytics on outliers, of which there is only ever one. Um, but that's unavoidable, I suppose. There is no other method of uh, denonymizing where you can still take into account outliers in your analysis. Well, we're trying, yeah, I mean, we don't, yeah, we're trying to, you know, make sure that no one record can be identified. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, you, you, you might have some extreme outlier um, and maybe it's, um, I, I think there are different ways to address that, you know, making sure you don't have the direct identifiers and also knowing what some of those outlier values are, but not with them all combined together. Um, but it, it's, that's less of a concern for us. Really what we're trying to do is um, get more data into the hands of people to do their, their work that otherwise wouldn't be able to get access to that data. So um You know, I feel like if, if, if we can get someone 90% of the way to the data that they need, that's better than, that's better than zero, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can you name a few of your uh, kind of most prominent or most representative use cases and um, what they're doing with it or the, the approach that they're taking? I think I might give um, listeners a, a more concrete idea. Sure. So we started with um, data for analytics, and and really we uh, we we our our algorithm is really fast, and so we can run um, we run in, in in batch mode, but it's it's very fast, so you don't have to wait very long to process data. And as a result, we are plugged into an ETL or ECL pipeline. So, you know, data is landing in a data warehouse, it's going through some transformations, and one of the final steps will be to anonymize the data. And then that way it's, you have, you know, some schema or some warehouse that you can give, you know, a larger number of people access to, to do their work. What we've seen more recently is this uptick, um, extra traction with anonymizing data for just really just more traditional software engineers that need data for 
development and testing environments, uh, especially as more and more software development is moving to the cloud, you know, with um, code spaces and um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of these uh, developer um, preview environment companies that are more or less based off of Kubernetes. Um, and so, but they still need data, right? So you can have all of your application code running, but you need realistic data. Um, and, you know, ideally you're, you're pulling it from production. And so what we're actually seeing people do now, we're, we're seeing them take a, you know, anonymize a copy of a production database on a daily basis or maybe a couple times a day and give that to the engineers. Yeah. Um, so both of those use cases uh, are batch an uh, anonymizing. Do you do any real time yet? Are you looking into it or are you deciding actually, no, we're going to specialize in what we're really good at and, and, and do it batch? What's your, what's your approach uh, in, in regards to that? No, we'll, we'll definitely do real-time data. We'll definitely do it. We're, we're, not, we're not quite there yet, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely um, and something we're working pose, on and something we'll have. But, you know, does that pose any more challenges with regards to the uh, K-anonymity approach? Because you might not know what the buckets should look like uh, at the beginning or the kind of bucket split might change over time. Um, or is it actually pretty straightforward to go from batch to real time? Uh, my engineering team would um, probably kill me if I said that it was straightforward to do that. Um, it's not, but we have we we have uh, <laughs> we have some some pretty good ideas on how to solve that problem. I mean, the reality is. Even just batch processing, I mean, we're we're a we're a relatively small company, so even just batch processing uh, will keep us busy for quite a while. But um, we do see longer term that there's a definite need for for streaming data. Yeah, and in a similar vein to not having access to all of the data at the same time, uh, I was wondering. Is there a security concern? And I'm, I, I like to think I have a bit of a kind of security and privacy-minded brain anyway, so maybe this is just too far and too technical. But is there a concern that if you have a batch of anonymized data, a potential attacker with access to previous data also anonymized, but as in historical versions of that same data, might be able to reconstruct uh, some of the original data uh, that would not have been possible to reconstruct with only one kind of snapshot in time of the data, and, and therefore that your system wouldn't be wouldn't pick up on being able to reconstruct. Am I making any sense? You make perfect sense. That's um, a start. <laughs> yeah. So. I think there are, yeah, I mean, there are, there are definitely examples of data that was released thought to be 
um, anonymized and was later proven not to be anonymized. I think the the Netflix example is a good one. Um, Can you recap for us quickly uh, what the Netflix example was? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. Um, my memory's fuzzy on this afternoon, but essentially they, I don't know if you re recall, but they had this um, uh, programming uh, algorithmic challenge to come up with a better recommendation system. And they, re they released all of their movie ratings as a, as a database. I don't remember, it was like a CSV or... I don't remember exactly, but, um, and they took out the direct identifiers. Um, but then later some people were able to combine that data set with other data sets and re-identify individuals. So again, like that speaks to the importance of perturbing the, the quasi identifiers or indirect identifiers, um, and that, that's that's that, like that's one example, but we, you know, we're doing um, these simulations in real time, over and over and over and over and over, making assumptions, very pessimistic assumptions about all the other. Um, yeah, and you just say you assume that have. an attacker would have a lot of really good data already. Yeah, so I think I think that's the key is is um, and and we're you know we're um, in, in in some cases you might have to have a k size of something larger than two, right? Um, but I think by being very pessimistic about what an attacker might have. Uh, gives us a lot of confidence in reducing the, the risk of re-identification. Yeah. So just to reiterate, a case size of two, would that mean that an attacker would have a 50-50% chance at guessing which um, individual uh, specific record is talking about? And then uh, I suppose legislation like HIPAA would say K has to be at least 50 or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, HIPAA doesn't spell that out. Um, HIPAA is, is that it's just not something they, they define. They, they spell out all of the direct identifiers that you have to take care of. Um, I don't remember the number, it's 15 to 20 direct identifiers or, or maybe even more, um, it, but it's in that neighborhood. Um, and then they, uh, they also define two different ways of sharing data. Um, uh, one is called, uh, is, is referred to casually as expert determination. And that's when you have uh, someone well-versed in statistics um, and privacy risk that does an assessment of the data. Um, and they've determined that the risk of re-identification is very, very small. And that is typically done um, on a case-by-case -case basis. But that's, that's, that's really 
that was how we got started with healthcare data was doing that in an automated fashion. Yeah, because that sounds quite labor intensive if you have to have someone uh, highly qualified uh, assess each data set individually. So what is the the other use case for exporting data that HIPAA, do you remember? Safe Harbor. Yeah, it's called Safe Harbor. Um, and it it greatly reduces the utility of data. So... It, I don't remember exactly, but it basically it spells out and says if you have a U.S. zip code, you have to remove the the trailing three characters or something like that. So um, if you're doing any sort of analysis on that's where you're trying to deal with locations, then that's it's going to give you some very um, rough data to work with, and it will be hard to drive any insight from it. Um, yeah, I, I see. So do you think it would be possible to abide by the letter of HIPAA, removing all the direct identifiers and such, uh, and still have a data set that is re-identifiable uh, through other means like secondary identifiers and so on? Um... I, I think I think that if you're, I mean that's it's a very open-ended question, but uh, yeah, I would have to look again at, at like what Safe Harbor is, um, what all their what all what are they spelling out to to obscure, um, and again, you know, with expert determination, it's pretty specific about. Um, that not being the possible. use case. Yeah, well, and it's also, I don't remember the language exactly, but it's, it's um, you know, data being used for this use case by these individuals. It cannot be re-identified. Individual, individuals in that data set cannot be re-identified. Yeah, yeah, that um, makes sense. But of course, there's so more that, than just... That's, 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 That's that's different than data that's been anonymized um, and is shared with an audience that it wasn't intended to be shared with, right? So again, um, that's why I think being as as pessimistic about what the attacker might have access to is is really important. Absolutely, and there is not just HIPAA. Of course, there are uh, a number of standards, a number of different legislations. And then there are use cases like the Netflix one where you do share the data with the wider public. So obviously you don't even have the protection of um, you ostensibly trust the recipients of the data. But it's just, you know, as soon as you release something into the Internet, uh, anything goes, as we know. Um, so there are some really cool encryption technologies out there. One I've uh, come across is... Um, Convergent encryption, I believe it's called, which allows you to have searchable ciphertext. So your data is uh, encrypted. I know what you're doing isn't specifically encryption. Just as an example, you can have encrypted data that you can still search through. Um, and then you still have, you can find the result, but you still have to decrypt it to um, see what it says, which is just mind-blowing to me if you, if you think about it. Uh, what is the most 
mind-blowing to you kind of piece of technology you've you've come across in this domain and are you using it or does it not have a place yet in uh, privacy dynamics um well i i think i think the encryption example uh that you came across i think it's i i do agree it's very impressive um but really well first of all we don't do encryption but at the end of the day um the encryption is is solving this is solving a data access problem and um you know you would still even if you have this encrypted data, if you're not, you know, if you're restricting people to aggregate queries and if you're not using something like K anonymity or differential privacy, you're, you can still leak sensitive information. So um, I, I just, I, I think there's some, sometimes when, when the encryption makes sense, but it's not, it's also not a silver bullet. Um, and, and you, you, you still have to ensure, so like, that's kind of what we're trying to do is, is, um, is eliminate the chance of human error. We see this a lot with, um, compliance software. You know, there are all these, um, specific rules that are set up for data access and ultimately, those are those rules are defined by humans, which are, um, you know, certainly capable of making mistakes and exposing some data that shouldn't be exposed, even though you think it's 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 protected. And so, what we're trying to do is just say, okay, hey, you know, you run your data, um, we anonymize it down to a, a certain K size, and it lands in this data warehouse or this. Uh, you know, relational database that your engineers are going to use and it's safe to use, right? Like you can give it to your entire engineering team or you can give it to your entire entire data science team or, or um, BI team, right? Um, so what you're saying is uh, so I, I mean, I, I, en encryption addresses uh, data access as in someone who isn't authorized to shouldn't have access to the data in the first place. Um, and you're not tackling that problem. You're kind of sidestepping it in order to make the data okay to be accessed by a wider group of people or even uh, anybody. Yeah, I think you, you summarize that very well. Yeah, that was great. Cool. Um, so going back to the question about just any cool technology you've, you've come across um, and not focusing on encryption, is there anything that is part of just research, which I suppose assume that you do uh, quite a bit of at Privacy Dynamics, anything that you found that someone has proven or is working on or any tech or uh, algorithm or mathematical model or whatever it may be, that just personally blew your mind? Uh, I, this is, this is out really outside of our domain, but um, I'm really excited about 
I'm really excited about uh, all these um, efficiencies that are coming to, to software development in general. Like I, I think that, um, you know, uh, like this, you know, generative text, um, what's the, what's the, the GitHub product, uh, Copilot, um, right? Like Copilot being combined with, um, developer and preview environments in the cloud, um, all these like really advanced tooling to make software engineers, I mean, like really five or 10 X more efficient. Uh, I think there's a lot of momentum in that space. Um, and, and, and I think there's a, there's a, there's a future with privacy dynamics there in that, in that space, um, unlocking data, but I'm really, it's, it's just someone that's been doing this writing software for a really, really long time. I'm, I'm pretty excited about all of that. And I think that's going to have a big impact, like a really, really large impact, right? Cause there's so many software engineers around the world. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, it's a really interesting thing to look at how the priorities have shifted over time. Like back in the day, you'd have been more focused on writing code that maybe fits into very little memory. Like, I don't know any of the numbers, but sometimes people bring up how little memory uh, the rocket used that went to the moon. Uh, like the programming that had to be done in there had to be super efficient. And nowadays we don't care about that at all. We, we care a bit about kind of network throughput, but mostly we just care about uh, creating an, an, an MVP uh, minimum viable product for our company to to prove its viability, and we care about the time uh, of the engineers, not the time of uh, of the CPU. And yeah, I can I can absolutely see how uh, if if I wanted to set up a company, I just wanted to have some sort of stock development model and environment. Like I'll use a cloud that's well established, even if it's not the cheapest, because I care more about the cost of my uh, development team than about that of uh, the cloud resources. And I'll use um, some other uh, software and collaboration tools. And I, I, I think absolutely right. There's definitely a place uh, in that stack for privacy dynamics so that I don't waste any of my own precious time uh, coming up with data for my other environments or for my analytics that either takes me way too long or is useless or thirdly and more dangerously is useless and I don't even realize it. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I absolutely get what you mean. I think there's, I think there's going to be a big change in how software engineers work. You know, we've kind of worked the same way for a long time. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I still run, you know, off of my laptop. Right. Um, because what if I'm on an airplane and I need to do some work, but, but, but really, you know, how many hours per month do I actually spend on an airplane? Um, not, not that many. Right. So, uh, I, I, I think we're going to see a big change here very soon. You know, another thing too, is with these, with these preview environments that I think are cool is you can spin up in a, a huge stack that you could never fit 
on your laptop, right? Um, it yeah, doesn't I really- I get what you mean. I, I still think there's a case to be made for uh, small feedback cycles. Uh, I get the airplane analogy as well, because on my current project, I've ordered a laptop rather than a VDI, because I knew I was going to fly into London uh, and back as I did last week. But truth be told, I was too hungover to do any work on the on the plane anyway, so <laughs> it was more of a it was more of an idealized scenario than uh, one I actually uh, needed to draw back on. Um, but yeah, I, I still think there's a case to be made for quick feedback loops. I want to be able to run, uh, develop stuff on my laptop, and just quickly say, "Try this, try this, try this," and when I'm happy, then I'll I'll, I'll kind of bring in a, a bigger environment. But I think, if anything, that's an even stronger case for something like privacy dynamics, because it's one thing to have um, poorly anonymized data or data I've anonymized myself in my own environment. It's another thing to put it on, uh, on, on developers' laptops and send them around the globe on planes hungover. Right. And... Um... I mean, let's be honest, there's no, there's no engineer that really wants to spend their time writing scripts to convert the production database into something that can be used by the rest of the engineering team. So, um, I mean, that's, that. so far we've seen a, a lot of uptick for us there is just because with a few clicks, you can... Um, you can have an anonymized database that's used, useful for everyone, and it's it's super easy. I mean, just like there's some things that that we just don't do ourselves; we outsource to other products or services, right? Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll use another service for for source control, right? We're not gonna we're not gonna run our our, our own source control server um, and have to maintain it. We're, we're not gonna we're not gonna run our own data center, right? It's just yeah, exactly. That's, and it, that's what I meant before. If 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 I if I try and do it myself, um, I'll I'll do it poorly. Uh, I I'll do it poorly, and I won't even realize I've done it poorly. So I'll I'll rely on poorly representative data for my uh, for my analytics or something, and I'll spend way too much time on it. So I'm I'm strongly in favor of um, of outsourcing these things to uh, a, a much more experienced and therefore competent. Uh, team also. So speaking of teams, um, we've talked about the company history a bit at the beginning. Um, I'd like to touch a bit on just the work uh, life balance uh, as well. You talk about that on your website as well. But first, you'd also talk about, um, quote, enabling ethical data teams. What do you mean by this? And why is this so important to your company? Well, the, the main point is, is what's often referred to as data minimization. And we want to make it, and what, what that means is that individuals that have access to data only have access to the data that they need to do their jobs and only for the, the duration of time that they're doing that job or project. Um, and it's, it, it's coming... Um, there's some new legislation uh, that's 
taking effect in, in 2023, um, the, the CPRA, the California Privacy Rights Act, um, that's being more prescriptive about data minimization. And so it's, one, we think it's just the right thing to do, but, but more importantly, or equally as important, companies are going to have to start thinking that way. And um, so, so really what we're trying to do is just make it as easy as possible for a company to do the right thing there with data, um, anonymize it, uh, you know, and, and, and help you only use it or, you know, hold on to it for the amount of time that you need it and no longer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think to summarize this, just to make sure I've understood it, uh, ethical data teams or ethical data consumption is only consuming the data that you need. So if I sign up to, um, YouTube, let's say it makes sense for them to know data such as, um, my date of birth in order to know which videos they, they can show me, but they don't need to know data such as, I don't know, my hair color and my shoe size. And so, uh, enabling teams to see only the data that they actually need to see for their job and therefore uh, eliminating any opportunity for kind of unethical data consumption. The first example that comes to mind is, I think, a bit too extreme. Um, thinking back to uh, uh, Snowden and how NSA people used to like uh, look at data a bit beyond their remit, like their friends, girlfriends and so on. Um, basically eliminating that opportunity altogether and therefore ensuring uh, ethical consumption. Is, is that about correct? Yeah, I think you, you, once again, you did a really excellent job of um, summarizing and, and actually doing a better job of explaining it than I did, I believe. So I, I'm a professional podcast host after all, even though it is my first time. <laughs> No, thank you very much. That's a lovely thing to say. Um, so tell me about um, just working at uh, Privacy Dynamics. You do emphasize work-life balance uh, on uh, on your website. It means different things to different people. I've come to find out through, well, talking to different people. Uh, what does it mean to you? Why is it important? And how do you achieve it? What does it mean to me? It means that you have uh, a place outside of work. Um, you, you have somewhere that you, you can go with your brain that's away from work. Um, you, you can't, you can't uh, think about work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I mean, I, I, everyone's different. Some people spend more hours per day than others, but I think the important thing is that you take a break and, um, and that there's, there's some sort of balance there. Each person needs a, maybe slightly different balance, but, um, if, if you don't stop and recharge, then you're, you're going to burn yourself out. I do a lot of, uh, I, I run a lot and, um, you know, it's like running a marathon. You can't, uh, 
you can't go out running as fast as you possibly can. You won't make it to the finish line. You'll simply run out of energy. Um, so you have to pace yourself. And so I think that's, um, that's, you can't pace yourself without having some sort of balance with, with, um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, me personally, and obviously I think a lot of people who work in, in the tech industry, in the startup industry, a lot of our listeners, um, will be familiar with that. I myself have had a, a bit of a, a burnout, depressive bout where I had to stop working quite early on in my career. So what would be your approach to uh, limiting that? Because like you say, everyone is, is different. Does it just come down to um, talking openly about it in the workplace, kind of being a bit more mental health aware and making it okay for people to express how they feel? And, uh, or is it, do you have a kind of more global approach? What, how do you go about that? Well, we're still a small team, so that helps. We don't quite have a, glo <laughs> a global approach. Yeah, I mean, it makes it easier. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we emphasize um, stepping away from work. We emphasize that across the team. Um, you know, um, there's so many different ways to to to, to get it across, but, um, we, you know, we, we, we emphasize it to everyone. We encourage someone. So again, um, here in Seattle, uh, it's gray and gloomy through the entire winter. <laughs> uh, and if there's a, you know, a, a day in, in the middle of the winter when the sun comes out and, the, and there are blue skies and it, but it's one o'clock in the afternoon, we'll just stop what you're doing and, your work and wait, um, and just go enjoy the weather. Yeah. So, um, it, it, it's those things. No one, everyone's encouraged to, to take those sorts of breaks, but I think there even are smaller, smaller little details that you can do, you know, um, don't, don't send emails on a Saturday, you know, or don't, uh, you know, if, if, I, I'm a big uh, fan of scheduling emails or in, uh, or, or Slack messages. Um, you know, if something comes to my mind and I and I'm thinking about it and I want to write it down, uh, I'll write. I'll go ahead and write it down. But I'm I'm not going to send someone an email on a Sunday afternoon asking them to work on something. Right? Like, um, I think so. I think that's part of it too is being respectful of of. Um, being respectful of other people's times. Um, and, and, you know, other people, like everyone has, they have different interests in what they do. So we have a, a woman on the team. She's a, she's a comedian um, and she does performances. And so, you know, I may, I may be busy doing my non-work things at different times of day than, than she is doing her non-work things. So I think also being aware of, um, not everyone is is necessarily like you and and um they they break up their time in different blocks than you do yeah and, and being respectful of that as well so it sounds like it's a lot focused around open communication and trust which i think is is one of the advantages you have as a, as a smaller company uh, but i've seen uh i've seen companies 
it's painful, but I've seen them scale that to um, still be the case when they have hundreds of, of employees. So uh, I, I hope that continues to occur for you. What's your, on the last note, what's your yeah. approach to remote working? Do you encourage it? Do you encourage people to come into the office? Uh, is it up to everyone themselves? So most of our team is, is remote. We have a small team here in Seattle, but we have people across, across North America. Um, yeah, I think, I think remote work is great. And, um, you know, you, you do need to have some way of being productive when you are working and you also need to have within an organization, you need to have some agreed upon, uh, time period when everyone can be online together. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think remote work is, is here to stay. Um, the exact definition of it may, may change a little bit, but, um, I, I think after 2020, I think, um, you know, the, the world has changed. Uh, we also, you know, we get everyone together a few times a year. So I think, it, and, and when we, and when we do get together, there's no agenda or, um, you know, prescribed things, prescribed work things that we, we have to do. It's just time to spend together and bond and get to know each other in ways that's difficult to do over a video call. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. I, I try and encourage my uh, colleagues and other kind of coworkers that I may have to do that as well, because you just react completely differently to say uh, a Slack message or an email if you have seen the person face to face than if it's just, oh, that guy again. Um, so yeah, I, I can absolutely empathize with that. Cool, well, John, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, I don't really know how to sign these off. Uh, it's fine, they can cut it. Um, do, you, do you have anything else you wanted to add? Anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's one thing that I would still add going back to um, the, the work-life balance. Um, and I'll just keep it very succinct, but, but not, not every company can do this, but we've had the, um, the advantage of growing, uh, at a very consistent, steady clip, but not, you know, any really large aggressive spikes. Um, and, and we want to continue to do that. And I think, you know, by not, absorbing or, or scaling up, um, and large, massive, uh, growth spurts, then I, th I think that makes it e that makes it easier to maintain that, that work-life balance that, that you, that you spoke of. Yeah, no, so gonna, I, 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 to... I think I know what you mean. If you, if you bring in too many people at once who don't, who aren't familiar with the culture yet, it's going to kind of irretrievably dilute that culture but, but if you bring them in slowly one by one kind of they'll all um i, ha I have a semi-fleshed out analogy in my mind with some sort of balls dropped in colored liquid and then they can acquire the color and then if you do it slowly then they'll spread it to others it doesn't really work yet i'll, I'll keep thinking 
but um yeah that uh that certainly does sound like an advantage in in, in keeping a company mentally healthy well said jeff <laughs> cool um all right should we try the sign off thing again I'm, i probably should have thought about how to sign it off um i guess i'll just thank you um are you hiring or are you looking is there anything else i should mention like apply here or something like that i would just, I just tell people to to go to our website privacydynamics.io um you know I, if we can make your life easier as a data scientist a data analyst or a software engineer um we'd love to yeah cool well, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll say that. And then I think the last bit you just said, that sounds great. All right. So that brings us to the awesome. end of the show. Hey, Jeff, Thank this, you this very was... much, John, for, uh, for coming on. Uh, if you're interested uh, in learning more about Privacy Dynamics, go to their website, privacy or privacydynamics.io, and um, feel free to get in, in touch with them. Thanks, Jeff. Cool.